Hello, welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Rozeal and I'm the host of the show where I have conversations with Olympic athletes, hopefuls, and legends on their story and path to the games. Today, we have the second part of the interview with John Fish of U.S. Rowing 1988 Olympian. The first part of the interview, if you didn't listen to it, highly suggest it. It was a lot of fun. The second part of the interview is all about his post-athletic career, which I don't know why you'd think I wouldn't do that, right? It makes sense because he learned so much from rowing. He learned so much from his career. He still had a hand in the USOPC at US Rowing, Board of Directors, Athlete Career Services. This guy did incredible things, and now he's doing some other stuff. But really a lot of fun to get to learn both sides of John's life. The first side, obviously, again, with the first episode about his athletic career, and the second side, everything he did with the USOPC and all his media background, production background, financial planning background, being working on shows that won Emmys. The guy has pretty much done it all. Uh, also a professor at NYU, so not messing around. But thank you so much for checking out this episode with John, and I hope you enjoy it. All right. To today, special guest again, we have John Fish of USA Rowing, 1988 Olympian. Almost won it three. Almost got there three times. Um, unfortunately, did not happen. And if you're interested, make sure to go listen to the previous episode that was released with John and I, where he discusses much of his rowing career, how he got into the sport and all the incredible things around it. But this is the second part of the interview where we really get to talk about everything that happened after John's rowing career. And I didn't want to cut any of that out because I think it's extremely extensive and what he's done, especially in the uh, USOPC circle, I think is fantastic. So I really want to get into that a little bit. So John, I, I know we were just talking for a, for a couple seconds here and I just I think your, your, your career is incredible. It, it was so much fun getting to talk to you last week. Really glad to get, to get you back on and learn kind of how you took everything from the sport of rowing where it's very disciplined, where you have to get up early, get on the water, you have to do everything perfect, and you're barely going to improve every single week until you can really start to see those numbers. So I really want to start um, in 1994. So as I said, you made the 98 games. You decided to try for the 92 games kind of late. Unfortunately, didn't get the opportunity to go. But you did get to March in the 1994 games, which is pretty significant. So if you don't mind starting the story off there, by not being a member of Team USA at that time, how exactly did you get to March in the 94 games? Well, I had been elected to the U.S. Olympic Committee's Athletes Advisory Council after the 1992 games. And so athletes elect athletes and each sport that is in the olympics and pan-american games gets to an elect an athlete rep so i got elected as rowings rep and then was sitting on the athletes advisory council and from that group some of us get chosen as athlete services coordinators at the game and our job is to be there to uh be there for the athletes so they have someone <clears throat> excuse me, closer to the competitive experience who has been there, who can actually help them through a lot of uh, different things. And that can mean uh, sitting in the office and helping someone get in touch with people, getting tickets. I did, I went and helped someone get their luge costume sewed up to having people come in at midnight and being worried the night before their race about what they're gonna do after they're done in competition. Also, there's an element of trying to uh, have people who are closer to that experience in case there's discipline problems. And also when there is a issue, 
that requires some kind of adjudication, like a, uh, a whether it's a discipline or a eligibility to compete, those athletes would serve as athlete representatives on the panel. So this was the 1994 games. And as you might recall, there were a lot of really great uh, uh, competitions like Dan Jansen and uh, Bonnie Blair and really great things going on in skiing. And, uh, but the big part of the games was the ice skating and Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. So there was some real uh, expectation that it, as that played out that we might actually have to adjudicate a disciplinary procedure. And what, what exactly happened with that situation? And, and you know, again, you're, you're clearly held in high regard because 94, as you've been talking about a little bit, was the winter games and rowing. We try not to get on the water too much during the winter, um, at least up here in the Northeast. So, I mean, clearly you were high, held in very high regard by your, your um, you know, athlete counterparts. But uh, just to bring up that, that situation, I mean, what exactly, what, what was your role in, um, you know, potentially having to deal with this, uh, you know, obviously awful, awful uh, occurrence? Well, there were discussions about whether to have a disciplinary uh, hearing. There is something that we refer to as athlete representatives as the right to compete. And if there's something that impedes or impairs that right to compete, there may be reason for a hearing. In this case, could someone's position on the team be taken away because of something uh, their behavior, or in, the, in, in this case, the behavior uh, of others and their involvement. And it's a very interesting lesson in that it was determined that there would not be a hearing at the games. And part of that was we had 150 other athletes. And the way the press was treating this, we were spending all this time dealing with one sport and one event. And it was determined that that was not going to take place on the game. And all of us who were there were going to be able to focus on uh, all of the athletes and not just deal with that situation. It's a, you know, an interesting justice question. Is justice delayed uh, a problem? It, did somebody compete that shouldn't have? Or did someone not get cleared in a way that they could have? And on the other hand, uh, there are so many other athletes who are preparing for the games and there's a finite amount of resources to deal with it. And that distraction could impair uh, all the other athletes uh, uh, ability to compete. So I did not make that decision, but I was ready, you know, in case that was going to happen and I was going to be chosen for that panel. Yeah, that, that could be very, um, you know, you bring up a great point. Obviously, it's a, a very media heavy, um, media heavy involvement, especially with everything going on. It, it was an insane story. I was very young, so I only I only remember it in, in like history books at this point. But at the same time, I mean, you make a great point that if you guys are paying attention to one or two of these athletes in this one event, in this one sport, as you said, there's another 150, another 140, whatever athletes that are there that you're supposed to be taking care of and making sure everything happens for. And if, if you do have that panel, that means there's less resources to go around to the rest of those athletes. And it's only focused in on one or two athletes. So I think it makes sense. Um, looking back, how do you, how do you feel about that decision? Do you think something should have happened or are you kind of happy that they waited for it to then, you know, after the games to go stateside and, and make uh, decisions? I, well, I, I'm always sensitive to 
any athlete's opportunity to compete. As we talked about before, those opportunities are so infrequent and Absolutely. happen. And it, it is a fortunate thing when it does happen. Uh, and one of the things as an athlete representative, which I think we'll talk about when we talk about uh, anti-doping a little bit later, is that one athlete who gets in, perhaps through means that were can, would be considered cheating or against the rules, prevents another athlete for competing from competing. So when you're dealing with an athlete issue, you're dealing with two different people's rights to compete and it's two compelling interests and it's very difficult. I, I look back, I was disappointed at the time because I wanted what would be justice to be happen, whatever that would be on a timely basis. At the same time, uh, I understood very quickly that it was the right decision at the moment because uh, there was a lot of focus. And as I was more involved in dealing with what was going on and realized the minuteness of what people needed, uh, then it was really something that we had to focus on and it couldn't have been done without being a circus. And uh, that's the, I was just about to bring that up with the media and everything kind of probably breathing down your back or, or maybe not yours specifically, but heads of, you know, these, these national governing bodies and, and the USOPC itself, how much pressure did you feel from the media to try and get an answer as quickly as possible? I, I, well, I don't feel I felt any pressure, and I think the USOC at the time was dealing with it and doing the best it could to manage it. You know, there's these situations happen that uh, draw focus, and ideally that will, uh, that will not uh, cause a problem. And ultimately, there, uh, you know, there were so many great stories at that games, and I was fortunate to have coaches' credentials for uh, most of the venues, and got to see practices and be there and be available for the athletes, and really got a chance to see amazing athletes in a venues that I hadn't seen before. And as we talked about, I'm a summer athlete and was chosen to represent at the Winter Games. And you learn a lot about so many different sports and what it takes to be exceptional. And we started this conversation with the opening ceremonies as I was well gonna as get the back closing there. ceremonies. I love it. And, and there is this element of being there in the central focus when this was not, I was not there for my own peak experience. And to some extent, I had an opportunity to enjoy it more than when I marched in it for the summer games when I was competing in 1988. So it was great in the, the winter and you march in in the cowboy hats and, and we had, it's the snow and it was in Norway and it was freezing and, uh, but beautiful weather, it, the cold, in Norway at five degrees does not feel like the 28 degree windy New York weather surrounded by buildings. So uh, it was just a, an amazing experience. And I got to make a lot of uh, good friends and it also helped me to be a better athlete represent, representative and do more for the Olympic movement and athletes as I developed as a leader within the, the committee. 
and we appreciate that and yes i was don't worry i wasn't going to spend too much more time on the uh, tanya harding and nancy kerrigan but at the same time it is a very interesting case and and you may have had a huge hand in it and uh but yeah i'm glad that you had a great time and that was going to be one of my questions what was it like um not being an athlete at the games but still getting to walk with your country and see all the other athletes and kind of taking it in with them and it sounds like you had an incredible time uh both in the opening and closing ceremonies right it's it, it's very important to for me that i was there to do a job and that had to be first and whether or not i could have had opportunities to enjoy myself which there were plenty i still was there to serve the athletes first and it's it's a funny thing in a career i've worked uh, a, a long time in the movie business and people have different roles and you look at the credits and uh, of the movies and see all the different things that you have to do and as people are trying to break in one of the things i give as advice is you have your job to do you're not there to be telling the director how to do the next shot if you're a production assistant or an accountant or a key grip or however that is, unless that's your role. You may have opportunities to do that. And similarly, I had things that I needed to do and be available for. And I couldn't go out there's, you know, and do all the things that may have been a fun opportunity because someone had to be on duty in the office. Someone had to be there if somebody had an emergency. And I think of all the time I sat there and that one athlete came in just before we were about to close because he was concerned about life after the Olympics even before he had finished competing. And we had a chance to chat and really talk about that transition and get focused back on to the competition, which is really what we're all there for. That's awesome. And yeah, being able to affect lives in, in this case and, and something close to your heart, especially with the USOC, the USOPC, working with the athletes directly, something that you've been doing, you know, as we talked about as a coxswain, you're, you're, it's, it's, it's a lot of working with people and making sure that that leadership and, and they understand that someone is, you know, at, at the helm, guiding them in the correct direction and, and doing what they can. And uh, it sounds like you're able to affect lives while you were there, which is absolutely fantastic. So this is the 94 games. This was in Lillehammer, Norway, as you described. If I'm not mistaken, and please correct me if I'm wrong, and if I am wrong, I guess I can just go out and edit this. But um, this was the first, this was two years after the other winter games, right? Like this was the first time that it, they decided to uh, start not having both the, both the winter and summer games in the first year, correct? Right, right. So there was a 1992 Winter Games, and then there was a 1994 Winter Games. Yeah, exactly. So did, did that make everything that you had to do more difficult or, or the entire team as a whole more difficult? Or was it just much easier because you only had two years to wait and get right into it? Um, I, there's a couple of elements of that, you know, that I, some of it's a little bit inside baseball, but I think it's a, you know, a really interesting part of that transition. There are so many components to getting Team USA ready to compete in the games. And whether it's the Olympic Games or the Paralympic Games that are following, having only two years can be more difficult. So you have basically four games in a four-year period. So whether it is going there and getting the, the venues ready, uh, making sure the athletes have had a chance to compete on uh, the 
ice or the track or whatever that is that they're competing on, making sure that the accommodations are taken care of, that the support teams ha have the, the right place, that there are tickets. It's all very, very difficult. And, you know, so there were two ways that I'm going through that. One is through the financial stewardship that I had in my role on the audit committee and as a member of the board of directors. Uh, but, you know, at that point, it was really, I was learning more about the organization so that getting ready for the games were not the types of issues I was dealing with, but I got to appreciate how hard it is. And it was hard for the games, what would have been at the time, you know, the games preparation uh, division. And they did, you know, a great job considering, and we had a, you know, a successful game with a lot of, you know, historic performances. That's awesome. Yeah. I was always curious kind of how that worked. Um, and it's kind of cool that you were on the inside and can give us a little bit of that inside baseball and see really what was going on um, at the time and, and really how much harder a lot of people had to work because instead of having four years to get something ready, they had two years to get something ready, um, you know, especially after. And I think there was another part of this that was even more complex is that 94 was two years after 92. And then the 96 Olympics in Atlanta took place, which is an even more difficult uh, way for uh, an effort preparing for our home games ends up being much more difficult than preparing for an away games. And, Absolutely. And so that really put a lot of pressure on uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee to get things ready. And, you know, broadly speaking, the Atlanta games were a success both for the games and for uh, the athletes of Team USA. Yeah, the, the Atlanta games, I do remember those. I was a little bit older for that one. Um, and I mean, look at ahead, you know, now it's 2020. We have Tokyo coming up in a couple months. But I know a lot of people at the USOPC, they're, all their sites are set on LA 2028. You know, right. so we have you know, 2000 or 2020, 2022 and 2026 to worry about. Um, and I already know that they're kind of eight years forward looking ahead to see what we can do for Atlanta. Or I'm sorry, for Los Angeles. And uh, it should be a fun one. Hopefully that's a pretty easy one for me to get to. I have some friends that live out in L.A., so hopefully they stay there over the next eight years and uh, I have the opportunity to go hang out. Right, right. I am definitely hoping uh, that, you know, it, it's, it builds up towards that and there's opportunities for it to improve uh, Team USA's performance as you go on, not only because of the commercial opportunities that it presents, but the idea that we're having a games and there's trade-offs uh, with the the teams that uh, with, with the the venues and the countries to get access to venues of the games that are upcoming, so people are used to uh, where they might be participating in the future. That's even more important in the Winter Games. Uh, and when we had Salt Lake coming up, that's an opportunity to get track time on the luge or bobsled or, uh, you know, on the cross-country skiing and trade to make sure that you can get the access that gives you the familiarity with the runs that you might have when you actually go and compete there. Let's cross our fingers. We won a couple extra medals during that time. So that should be fun. Um, so that was not your only job. I think we spoke about it last time, uh, but I do want to run through some of these things that you've done just because I think it's incredible, just the involvement you've had, but also the time that you've put forward. So your involvement with the USOPC, Athlete Advisor, Board of Directors, Olympic Foundation, Audit Committee, Budget Committee, you were on the US Rowing Board of Directors and Athlete Career Services, which I'm pretty sure is what we just spoke about. What, um, 
what made you want to give back so much? Because that is a lot of time. That's a lot of energy. And in many of these jobs are thankful thankless and if anything people are angry at you most of the time so what why like why why did you want to be so involved especially after um you know your career ended well i there's this element that people talk about giving back to something that gave me so much i mean it it, it, you know getting involved in rowing and competing in the olympics and being on seven u.s national teams changed my life in so many different ways but I want to offer up for me that idea of utilizing the things that the skills that I have in a way that can help others also gave me so much in terms of uh, learning opportunities, building my leadership skills, helping to improve the satisfaction of being able to change things structurally, uh, add levels of fiscal responsibility. Uh, I put a lot of efforts into the anti-doping and making those changes really was something that just was part of me. I wanted to be, uh, you know, the term they use now is servant leader. I think that describes myself as a leader and someone who is, likes to be part of a team that gives me my thrills, and that was some of the great benefits I got from rowing, and I continued to get that by being involved on a team of athletes with exceptional men and women who had been through these same uh, competitive experiences I had, and we used those together to try and improve uh, the, the lives of others and make things better for those who came after us. Well, we appreciate what you have done. Um, you, you make a great point, especially with, again, con- the connections to rowing, you know, being that leader and being of service, um, and now then being able to move forward and help these athletes and do all these other things that have allowed some incredible things do happen in the USOC, do happen in the IOC and the international sports scene through the Olympics. And we're very grateful for what you've done. I do appreciate it. I, you probably don't hear it enough, but, but thank you for what you've done for representing our country multiple times, um, winning medals, having a good time, and, and really being a nice face of the United States um, when you are in the international scene. So we do appreciate that, John. Well, you're welcome. And I, I do want to say uh, I got more out of this then I gave back. So there, there are so many opportunities and so much learning that I've continued to do through my involvement that has helped me in my career and allowed me to you know, make changes and transformations both inside the Olympic movement and Paralympic movement and outside that movement because of the leadership skills that I gain from working with and representing athletes. And we love it. So now I do want to start talking about your career, your post-career rowing career. Um, you brought up a couple of companies in the first discussion. I know you said you worked for Ernst & Young for a little while. So that's, that's a, a nice, nice name on the resume there. But I know you have a relatively extensive media background uh, production background, financial planning background. It's it's very interesting when you sent over some of those letters after your name, and I, I can't rattle them all off. I mean, I might as well just say the alphabet at that point. Um, but it seems like you've done a lot of different things. And as you've been talking about, and, and again, this is why I wanted to have this as a second part, you learned a lot from your rowing background with your time with Team USA and, and, and learning and being a servant leader. And it sounds like you were able to take a lot of that and push it forward into your career. How easy was that transition? Like after you were finally said, okay, you know, no more competing, that's over. 
and then start winding down on, on helping out Team USA and, and the USOC and US Rowing, how, how are you able to take a lot of the things that you learned and really start to implement them into your, as I said, post-career career? Well, there's this element of transition that there are many advantages from being an athlete and being part of a team and being a competitor and having that drive. And there's also a few disadvantages. I was able to, after I graduated from college, start right away with Ernst & Young, but there were elements from continuing to compete where in some ways I was behind uh, my peers because they had advanced and had more experience. So there, there's definitely pluses and minuses to that. The transition that goes, um, I think one of the things that can be very difficult for athletes, and we see this with professional athletes even more so because I had no expectation of making my living from rowing, whereas professional athletes may make a very uh, substantial living and then may not have the ability to you know, continue on that. And there is this idea of being at the center of your own universe and being exceptional at something and starting off at the beginning again. And that is something that I was able to do repeatedly in order to gain more skills. And I think as a lifelong learner and someone who has built on each of the skills I had before, even if I go and start again, I am able to do great on that, you know, great on that, and that I get from my sports. So transitioning into the media business, I had to start at the bottom. Uh, when I started teaching as an adjunct at NYU, which is already, uh, you know, 2001, 2002, so a long time ago, I had to start at the bottom. And you have to do all of these ideas and, you know, start with an idea and work your way up. And as you get older, that becomes more difficult because you potentially make less money. You potentially are at a lower level. You're doing things that uh, you weren't, didn't have to do before. And that is a very, you know, that can be difficult to a, a career, but I, I just love to be exceptional at something and I found ways to transition what I had learned in another area and bring it into the next area so that growth trajectory can be very effective and move me to the next level pretty quickly. I think that's very important. Um, you make a very good point because a lot of the athletes that I speak with, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little different from your perspective, as you said. I mean, you walked on to the, the UPenn rowing team, right, in 90, 1980, and it was not of the expectation that you were going to be a rower for the rest of your life. It was not the expectation to even attempt to go to the Olympics, but quickly found out that that was a possibility, which I think is awesome. And, and obviously, you've, you've learned so much from it. But there are so many athletes that their expectations – from 12, 13, 14, 15 is to go to the Olympics, especially in many of these winter sports, skiing and snowboarding specifically, that swimming as well, that they will essentially put their lives on hold for a significant period of time and then come back. So as what you've done, you've been able to kind of transition out of sports multiple times, essentially, to start somewhere, take what you've learned and utilize it. Many of these athletes only have known one thing, so by the time that they're 28, by the time that they're even 26, they're so much further behind their peers as you were talking about, but they never had the 
opportunity, let's call it, to be able to start from the bottom before because they've all, all they've known their whole life was, hey, I'm going to do this one thing and I'm going to do it really well. How have you been able to try and help some of these athletes, especially with some of the things that we discussed in, the, uh, in your involvement with the USOPC, to get them to understand that this is an opportunity and how they can take what they've learned, just as you did, from their sports career and apply it to their ongoing and their, their post-career career? Right. Well, I mean, there's a few opportunities I've had. You know, one, one of them is the athlete career services, which I, I still take advantage of, uh, even at my level, is a great program in that it provides resources, it provides connections, it provides services in terms of career coaching and, you know, resume assistance and other things, as well as availability of positions. There are great programs that many people take advantage of in terms of getting an education uh, uh, via a, a sponsorship from uh, DeVry University. So people are able to do that. Uh, people are able to get access to companies that will allow them to get flexible hours so that they get experience in training. And so athlete career services, just coincidentally, when I finished my uh, Olympic involvement, Ernst and Young was uh, sponsoring at that time uh, a mentor service for the Olympic job opportunities program. And so I was matching up athletes with mentors who are in the business world. And I got involved in athlete career services, even before I was a member of the board of directors. And while I was on the board of directors and uh, a member of the athletes council and vice chair, that was something that I continued to support as an organization and as a service that is important to athletes both during and after their career and something that resources should be moved towards. And when I was ultimately chair of the budget committee, that was clearly of the US OPC or at the time the US Olympic Committee, I was able to deal with that. In addition, I've gone back and I've talked to panels and I've talked to companies on behalf of the USOC and I've, I, I've um, uh, you know, done a lot of different things. I, I, before the 2012 games, I went and talked with a group of uh, uh, sponsors and HR people at those sponsors about how they can work with athletes. I was part of a panel and part of a multiple day brainstorming session. So it's something I believe in. But once again, I've been a beneficiary of that, you know, uh, as much, if not more so than I've been able to give back. And, and it, it seems that's a, that's a common theme that we've been hearing in the last you know, hour and a half, you and I have been discussing this, is that you, you find how you can receive from something as well. Obviously, you're giving back in all of these situations, but I'm a big karma guy. And if you can, you know, you give a lot back, you usually are going to get a lot too. And uh, it's, it seems like you've been able to find how you can receive things from this, how you can receive attributes and opportunities and, and just becoming a better person overall through many of these opportunities where you're the one giving. Uh, so I really do commend you on that. I think that that's absolutely fantastic. And then, you know, I'm sure this has helped significantly with networking. I'm sure this has helped significantly with many other opportunities in your life as well. Um, and, you know, I really do appreciate, again, I uh, can't say it enough what you've done for the, the Olympic movement, especially here in the United States, specifically with the athletes. Um, I also like how you kind of, uh, you, you worked your way, I'm sure, onto the budget committee then to become the budget committee chair, then to say, hey, you know, guys, I think this is uh, pretty important. Maybe these athlete services, we should pay some more attention to that. And then uh, you were able to, it sounds like, 
don't, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you were able to significantly um, uh, persuade, if I may, uh, why people should. Well, you know, it's an, it, I think there were two kind of critical experiences and uh, transformational and change management things that I was able to participate in and was able to get that uh, leadership experience uh, based on being on the Olympic Committee. Uh, one which we were just talking about is the Budget Committee. I had been on the Audit Committee and we would look at the uh, internal audit reports for every national governing body or any other organization that received a grant. And I was very experienced as an auditor and I was a working member. I looked at the detail and I knew things and I worked with the CFO very closely and I worked with the head of internal audit and with the, the rest of the committee. And I was able to, through that work, uh, support some of the things that were important to me, which was that the direct payments to athletes, the payments that were supposed to go to them without conditions, were going to them without conditions. And there were times where I was basically serving on, let's call it a chapter 11 committee where NGBs were having a difficult time and I was the rep of the audit committee when they weren't being managed effectively and you get to see kind of a turnaround situation up close and a transformational. And because I had done all that work over such an extended period of time, when uh, the new president came on after the 2000 Olympic Games, she appointed me to be the budget committee chair uh, because I was a person who was able to, uh, I had demonstrated the skills. Um, I remember an interesting story of something that was probably a turning point for her. I was supporting the USTA getting a ton of money. And people would be, well, they're very wealthy, and why should they get money? I said, well, they have athletes on the US Olympic team, they are entitled to it. It doesn't matter how much other money they have. And most importantly, they were a very effective, high-performing national governing body, both at developing talent and producing medals at the Olympic Games. And regardless of whether that could have been used by a, a less effective sport or a less rich sport, that was something that was very important to me. Those are some of the things that I utilized when I became chair of the budget committee. I think prior to that, it had been a little bit of a way to dish out things to competitive interest. There might be winter sports versus summer sports or big market sports versus small market sports, uh, uh, successful versus non-successful, you know, things that were widely popular or professional. So, I worked with the CFO to establish guiding principles for the budget allocation, and we would go around to each of the key stakeholder groups and talk about those guiding principles as the representatives of the board. This would be the budget committee, and we'd get great votes and a great allocation that was to the benefit of the athletes getting their direct support and to the NGBs who are able to best support the athletes and coaches and administrators to produce successful teams and develop athletes. So it's the most uh, important thing. It, it, it's a, a great thing. And then the other 
you know, experience was really my involvement with, uh, as a vice chair of the Athletes Council on uh, the anti-doping efforts. So, you know, think about when I was competing from 82 into the 90s, this is largely uh, the time of the great uh, doping. Uh, you know, there are some scandals where people got caught, but for the most part, most people did not get caught. Um, and there are a couple of definitive experiences, and this is where being around the athletes at the Athletes Council get an idea of what some of the problems are. And we would see that whether or not U.S. athletes were, um, were participating in drug use, they were still impacted by that. And I remember being at uh, a board meeting and... Uh, Edwin Moses was an the IOC athlete rep, and he was talking about the things that we were going to have to do to be successful in terms of no advance notice and surprise testing. And I, my thought was, why, you know, why do we have to give up our privacy, do all of these things to be tested at any moment? And his point to me was that rowing is a high-risk sport by the IOC because of what was going on in the Eastern Bloc countries. It was a very large medal count and a very large number of athletes. So it was a prime target for doping. And so even though I wasn't seeing doping with the athletes on the rowing team, it was, it was something I knew we were up against. And that really highlighted it. And uh, I chose to make that one of my key issues. Uh, interestingly enough, my CPA experience and as an auditor and doing fraud audits really helped. There's, you know, something in that, uh, you know, the, how does fraud get done? There is an opportunity, there's a motivation to get it done, and there's a rationalization. You know, everybody else is cheating, every, all of these other things. At the same time, uh, whatever the motivation is, if unless we can be leaders in the United States to stop it, um, then it would have been very difficult to stop it. And as vice chair of the Athletes Council, I was the person who was creating the agendas and I made sure that doping was on the agenda at every meeting and would bring it to the executive committee of which I served also, along with athletes from some sports like bobsled and boxing and weightlifting and one of the things that happened was I became the representative for the what part of the U.S. delegation at the World Anti-Doping Conference in 1998. And here's where I really learned my lesson and got schooled. The rest of the world viewed the United States as cheaters. Really? Yes. So here you have athletes in certain sports, high money sports, who were being testing positive for performance-enhancing drugs, and then through our non-independent adjudication system, were getting off. You know, there were I had elevated testosterone levels because of beer and sex, or okay, they had okay. better lawyers, or all kinds of things. And not only that, because of what was going on in professional sports. Yep, baseball. Yep. And which was an Olympic sport, the rest of the world viewed us as cheaters. 
and I was walking around meeting with people from all over the world. Some of them were athletes that I knew and had competed with and against and people who were friends of mine and uh, people I had met through this. And that was shocking to me. And so that created the kind of foresight that we needed to have an independent doping agency. And it was purely bureaucratic reasons, trying to overcome the inertia of how difficult it was and the cost and all of these things that was preventing us from making change. And here is where having athlete leaders and athlete representatives made the difference. We wrote and I had presented a motion at the board of directors. The first thing we did was took away the exception for professional sports that they were subject to their own collective bargaining agreements like baseball, basketball, soccer, uh, uh, hockey, and made them uh, have the same, uh, same rules. And we said in the motion, we may not have win the same number of medals. We may not have the same performance, but this is critical. And then while we weren't able to have the independent doping agency established before the Sydney games in 2000, it was established immediately afterwards. And that created uh, an opportunity for when Balco and the other things that were going on in baseball and track and field that we as the US OC, we're having an independent agency and we're able to deal with this so it didn't look like the USOC or the NGBs were trying to cover this up. That's awesome. And thank you for doing all that because that's always been very relevant in all sports. Um, you know, a lot of Olympic sports, I and mean, I have a question coming up about what's going on currently in weightlifting, but that is, it's, it's interesting how that even though it seemed like you were doing the right thing and you were trying to do the right thing, you specifically being on the inside, seeing all the things that were, was going on and how you were trying to correct them. It's interesting then how you go into the international, uh, you know, you're in the international space and everyone is viewing us as cheaters. Um, you bring up baseball, obviously in the nineties and the early two thousands, uh, PEDs were running wild. I mean, you look at some of those guys now and we like, how, how did we not notice anything? Like, it's pretty crazy. Uh, but, it's, you know, very, you know, we appreciate what you've done. And, and again, I think it's, it's fantastic. And, and how, you know, Edwin Moses does bring up the, the, the fact about rowing, you know, maybe we're not doing it, but it's going to affect us no matter what, because of what's happening in the Eastern Bloc and because of what we're trying to do to combat against that. And as you said, uh, it's interesting how you've brought up your, your CPA um, career and how you look at fraud and, and, um, and steroids and PEDs in kind of the same light. There's, there, there's those multiple correlations that, that make it very interesting. Um, with what's going on and what just happened, I think only a, you know, a couple months ago in the weightlifting community, there is a huge, huge scandal throughout the entire world, it seems like, um, with what's going on with doping. There was a documentary, I think, that came out in, in another country. Forgive me, I don't have all the information, but I know it's very important what's going on and how it's going on. Do you have any extra information had are you i don't mean to put you on the spot but are you are you familiar with the situation and what's going on well i'm i'm not familiar with that situation but one of the things from dealing with so many athletes is i you know there's there is this element where people feel a uh that in order to compete they must do something to try and compete 
uh, I, I, for me, there's another issue that happens, you know, especially in combat sports, uh, you know, where it's one team against the other hitting them, that there are, I, I think the injury and the safety is a bigger factor. And I, quite frankly, that's a higher motivation for me, even than the competitive advantages that some get, is that whether it's those people who are taking it, those people who feel compelled to take it, or those people who are competing against people who are taking it, and it impacts their injury and their health and their recovery and their long-term health. And that is why it becomes incredibly important to uh, have a system of, uh, you know, there's three parts to it. There's the education, there is the the kind of testing and punishment, and there is going out and, uh, you know, just making sure that there are rules for people to follow that are fair and understood. And it's, I have this kind of very interesting story. We were not being drug tested when I was competing. And the night before, or the morning of the Olympic trials, I should say, 1988, I had a little bit of cold. Uh, I was going for a run and I was trying to decide whether to take um, a cold medicine. And the thing I had in my kit bag that we were so undereducated at that point, I had a Sudafed. And I said, ah, oh, forget it, I don't wanna take it. Now, can you imagine if as a coxswain, we won the Olympic trials, I had taken a Sudafed, which would have had ephedrine, which is a banned performance enhancing drug, and we were disqualified from participating in the Olympics because the coxswain had taken uh, you know, some kind of PED. And that is, um, that's another part of this is, there are many athletes who sometimes taking take things knowingly. I, I mean, I, they take a medicine through every effort. I knew a, a good friend of mine who had, there was a medicine they took, spoke to the doctor. There's the regular one. There's the one with the D at the end. They're getting an injection, made sure to get the right one. Doctor prescribed the right one. The nurse, gave him the wrong one and oh, he no. was disqualified from competition that is yeah that's that's awful um you know that thing those things happen human error it, it exists for a reason that is just very unfortunate for your friend um but no i mean you bring it up only this is only 32 years ago not even right it's like 30 years ago and you guys really had no idea what you could or could not take and as you said you were how undereducated you were and now some of the, uh, you know, what athletes go through, you know, I had a story or I had a, a conversation with Madison Cox, who um, she was banned from swimming for two years because there was a multivitamin that she would take from, you know, the time she was very young. It got tainted. She failed her drug test. They finally found out what tainted it um, and how, what, how she failed her test. And it turns out she then only had to serve a six month ban, but what she went through for those six months um, was she, you know, just absolute hell for her because she's, the sport was taken away and so many other things happened. So it's very unfortunate. Um, but yeah, those stories happen, you know, they don't, hopefully they don't happen as often as we hear about them, but um, you know, it's never, it's never a good, good time when you hear something like that occur. It, it is, there, there's tragedies in many of our sports in that there were people who were trying to get an advantage and gotten an advantage and may have made money, may have impacted their long-term health and may have died, but they also 
hurt other people yep. who may have been able to compete and in some cases physically hurt them because they were at a higher strength than they were meant to be. It's, and, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. And, it, and so the arc of when I was competing of both being under, undereducated at the same time competing against state-sponsored uh, doping countries uh, it's really, you know, a remarkable time to have been competing. And we spoke about the Goodwill Games in and winning, in yeah. Moscow and winning against the world champions. It's hard to know whether or not they were on drugs, but that's another part to this that's unfair to the fair competitors is that every athlete who competes, who is in one of those sports in one of those times is tainted even if they weren't doing that. Yep. And that, that's in our professional sports. You know, they talk about the asterisks, and that's really unfair to those people who were not participating in that. It, 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 you, you bring it up in the professional sports, and you know, baseball is you know, my first love, my only love. Don't tell my girlfriend. But, yeah. you know, that happens. It happens all the time. If you just bring up athletes from the, you know, we were talking about at the late 80s, pretty much the entire decade of the 90s and the early 2000s, it's kind of assumed no matter who you were, where you were, or what your numbers were, that you were cheating in some capacity. Um, and it's unfair. It's unfair to the athletes that weren't cheating, right? It's unfair to those guys that lost their jobs because they didn't want to cheat. It's unfair to so many people. And uh, they're still under that blatant statement of, you know, they were all doing it. Um, and it also probably drove a lot of people to do it, right? Like if, if you see everybody around you, I know you were talking about before, if um, – can't remember the word you justification maybe i can't remember the exact word you use but everyone else is doing it so i should too i'm sure that did happen where in certain cases especially in baseball and some of these other sports that we're talking about when you actually do see everybody else doing it when you do know these as you said state sponsored doping um opportunities coming up it will drive certain people to do it uh, now whether that's right or that's wrong i'm not i'm not moral authority but uh, in, in many situations it it doesn't help it never helps um and it even hurts the person doing it because as you said you know your health is involved too and we kind of forget about that and and there is now this time where you know for transformational change and you know something that i've been able to use in the business career where you have to take the first step the first action and the u.s creating a very strong anti-external to the usoc anti-doping agency allowed us to be leaders because we were doing the right thing first love it and you gotta it, it's it, and sometimes you have to take the first step and that's what leads to fundamental change. And we were able to be greater leaders in the United States and with that around the world in a way that we had no moral authority. And that came from having athlete reps. When we were going to put this through from the Athletes Council, no one could fight against it because the athletes are saying, we're gonna to go to under this strict regime. We want this to be done. We know it's gonna impact us, uh, but this is how it has to be done. And people who couldn't overcome that inertia were able to follow the lead of the athletes. And as we had talked about, athletes were elected by athletes and had to be on the committees and got opportunities to lead provided examples to others to lead and really understood the important issues 
of the athletes and can represent those interests. And I'm grateful that I was elected by my peers and grateful that uh, we were given that opportunity. Me too. And thank you for, uh, for what you've done. Um, so this was very extensive, but I actually do want to take a little time and talk about what you're currently doing, because that was most of the point of this, this entire second conversation is what you're doing now, because I think it's really cool. But we had a great conversation anyway, on really everything else that you've done in the in the Olympic world. And again, very appreciative, not only representing our country as an athlete, but within so many opportunities on U.S. rowing within the USOPC, having, you know, the athlete uh, career services and the advisory and doing all these things for the athletes. That's the thing I like the most. Um, you know, I do what I do for the athletes. Um, so I appreciate what you've done and how you've done it. So I know you have a very extensive background in media, productions, financial planning. How you're, you're a teacher that we brought up last episode, we brought up this, you brought it up this episode at NYU. What made you want to kind of dip your toes into so many different pools? Even as you were talking about before, you pretty much go from a, a mid-tier or, or top of the ladder all the way down to the bottom, have to learn everything to climb all the way up just to do it again and again. Well, I think I, I, there's so many things that I've loved. And, I, you know, my career has had a pretty solid up trajectory over the last 15 years. So it's, it hasn't been my whole career of that course, I've done of that. Course. But once I transferred into media and became a media expert, uh, I, it, there's elements of production and what would be called production finance, managing, budgeting, keeping track of the cost, not the raising money side of it. But I, so I've been involved in that and I've done that at both for-profit companies and non-profit companies, worked in advertising as a CFO for the Advertising Council, worked in production finance at HBO, uh, worked in uh, TV production finance and general ledger at Martha Stewart and a couple other companies that owned Elvis Presley Enterprises and American Idol. And so got to be with a lot of great iconic brands that I consider along with uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee and Ernst & Young and things that I can do really well at as you know along with my teaching and uh the last couple of years i've been doing interim cfo work uh i've been doing corporate team building and now i'm looking for uh you know a, a career either in media advertising uh we've talked about some of the ways that i add uh that i've added value and i'm a great accountant and one of the things from i take from being a coxswain is the ability to have the detail as well as to have the overriding strategy and the people skills. And so that, those are the types of things that I, I do well. I had just finished up an interim job and I went in and was able to make a lot of real changes in a very short period of time. And I think something that that skill building has really helped with is I've become very technologically proficient. I am agile, a certified scrum master, as which as kind of a, a funny, you know, principle is one of my guiding principles in life. And what happens in agile development of software is problems and challenges aren't easily understood at the outset. So you have to continually monitor and make adjustments, and then you continually deliver workable pieces of the product. It's kind of like in a race. You're going along, something happens, the other boat 
does something, you you have the boat your boat bobbles, you're not going according to plan, and you have to make adjustments. And that happens in the business world and every single company that I've worked for has either gone through a merger, a transition, a disposition, all of these things, and it's not you know, unprecedented times. When I joined my uh, uh, one of the companies in 2008 at the Ad Council, people were talking about how it was an unprecedented, uh, you know, recession, and mm-hmm. talking about transformational media times. I could say in my eight years at the Ad Council, there wasn't anything that I hadn't seen before, and even if it wasn't the same exact thing, I was totally prepared to make adjustments and do. Uh, move forward and advance even in challenging times. And so it's, you know, sports and temperament prepare you for a business career. I completely agree. I've seen it in many situations and obviously in yours, being able to take what you've learned, that's kind of been the theme of these last two episodes and utilize it moving forward has clearly been a huge, huge opportunity for you. And you found multiple things to do and, and fallen in love with a few things and been able to find kind of yourself, I guess, in a way, and really understanding what you like to do and how you like to do it. You've been able to kind of mold it in a couple different industries with a couple different um, companies, as you said, some iconic ones like HBO, Martha Stewart, and and really just being able to take what you've learned in all these situations. um, And now having a very extensive library at this point of things that you've learned of situations that you've seen of experiences, and being able to pretty much use utilize them in, in in all circumstances, or be able to go back, look through that Dewey Decimal system of experiences, pick out which ones are necessary in this particular situation, and utilize it. And it seems like you're doing a very great, great job at that. So, um, John, this was fantastic. Second time conversation, another hour felt like about 20 minutes. So hopefully everyone listening feels that way too. Uh, in terms of media, if, if you want, I'll let you be my agent, um, because hopefully one of these days, I'll be so good at this, uh, that someone's going to want to pay me to do it. But until then, uh, if you have any any suggestions or or if you know of uh, any any jobs that are opening up, I'd love the opportunity. But um, well, <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things I think that is key is that idea of liking what you do. And I know you like Absolutely. this. I, love I think it. that's something that I've done that is one of the keys to my success and advancement is. I do things that I like, whether that's the books that I read, the events that I go to, the people that I hang out with, and then you find things that you explore and people that you want to explore them with. And that's the best way to advance and become exceptional. We'll keep doing it. So I appreciate it. One last time, John Fish, U.S. Rowing, 1988 Olympian, all-around great guy. John, sincerely appreciate your time today. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for checking out the second part of the interview with John Fish. It was an absolute blast getting to speak with him. Him and I met up in New York City not too long ago. Got to meet face-to-face other than through the Zoom call. Um, Please make sure to follow John on any of the links that I put in the show notes. Please make sure to follow us on any of the links that I put in the show notes as well. We're doing some fun stuff, having some fun opportunities, and it has been a blast so far. If you could uh, rate this show five stars or do whatever, give it a star. I don't really know how all of the systems work. I just know about Apple because that's what everyone tells me is the most important. So if you could please give us five stars there, that would be incredible. Subscribe, review, share with your friends because the more you do that, the more people get to hear these incredible stories. So thank you all so much and I hope you make it a wonderful day.